Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 42, originally recorded live on May 4th, 2012. The Society for Humanistic Judaism selected 19th century activist Ernestine Rose as its humanistic Jewish role model for this year. Rabbi Shalom presents a look at Ernestine Rose's history and the impact she had in America. The scene, the United States in 1835, the year that William and Ernestine Rose immigrate from England. To travel from place to place, you have to take a stagecoach or a railroad in the early days of railroad. The telegraph had been invented in the 1830s, perfected by 1840, but the best way of finding out what was going on in the world was something called the newspaper. No radio, no television. And newspapers understood that they were the record of events. And so if there was an event, a conference, a speaker, the paper had the word. And if you wanted to get your word out, You used the paper, or you wrote a letter to the paper. The major form of public entertainment? Public lectures. You think about today, there's something called TED Talks, where someone gives a talk and you can watch it on the internet over and over again. Imagine giving your TED Talk in every town along the circuit. Because if you want people to hear it, the only way for them to hear it is to hear it in person. What was it like to be a woman in the United States in 1835? You had very limited property rights. You had very limited personal rights. There was no voting for women. Their sphere was the private sphere, whether as daughters or as wives and mothers. And certainly, almost no public speaking. Drawing on passages in the New Testament such as in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. In 1835, the United States was in the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. It was a huge revival of religious piety and fervor, the massive growth of the Methodist and Baptist movements, Huge revival meetings, a religiously inspired restoration movement which wanted to go back to the old pure forms of Christianity and the Bible in a fundamentalist way, but also religiously inspired reform movements, the temperance movement which wanted to control the evils of drink, and the abolitionist movement which was inspired by religious fervor to end a human evil. It was also the beginnings in this first part of the 19th century of American nativism, of an anti-immigrant sentiment that would culminate in the founding of an American party, also known as the Know-Nothings. When you ask them what their plan was or whether they met, they would say, I know nothing, because it was secret. But it was designed to get rid of the Catholics and the immigrants and the Jews. Now, in that setting of the United States in 1835, imagine a Jewish immigrant woman from Poland seeing words like this at a public meeting in Boston in 1844. I need not advise you to stay away from the Poles. This is a vice with which your lords would not allow you to meddle anyway. 
even though they were willing to deluge the land in blood to secure the privilege for themselves. I do not only want to discourage you from supporting forceful governments in every shape, form, and manner that they may be presented, but also to use every moral and virtuous means in your power to bring into odium, to break down this popular religion which was absorbing the people's sympathy, time, and means, which directed their hopes and attractions from earth to heaven and from the present to a future life. The clergy and the church don't recognize your right, my sisters, to speak publicly or in the church. Speak then not in their favor. They say that in your appropriate sphere, in the nursery and private circle, you have an all-powerful influence. Exercise it for their destruction and for your own elevation and for that of the human race. What rights have women? Are they not the merest slaves on earth? What a freedom have they? In government they are not known, but to be punished for breaking laws in which they have no voice in making. All avenues to enterprise and honor are closed against them. If poor, they must drudge for a mere pittance. If of the wealthy classes, they must be dressed dolls of fashion, parlor puppets, female things. When single, they must be dependent on their parents or brothers, and when married, it's followed up in their husbands. Nothing of nobleness, dignity, and elevation is allowed to exist in the female. All such traits in her are indelicate or unbecoming. The state of society does not recognize women's equality. She may lean upon a gentleman's arm, but to travel alone would be immodest and vulgar. My sisters, speak out for yourselves. Tyrants never will willingly relinquish their grasp. All that the lords of creation will yield will be what they are forced to by public sentiment. Spend one-tenth part of the time strength and devotion in spreading information on this question than you do in the ministerial church Bible tract and mission and other religious causes, and the work will be accomplished. In all these movements, is not woman the stay and the staff? What could the church and clergy do without woman? I call upon you then, as you who venerate truth and reason, as you love yourselves, your children and the human race, never to enter a church again. Countenance them not. They oppress you. They prevent progression. They are opposed to reason. Can you believe it? There are parts of the country today where you might hesitate to say something like that. And here's Ernestine Rose. Less than 10 years in America, only 15 years in an English-speaking country, traveling and lecturing to crowd after crowd on women's rights and freedom of thought, criticizing religion on one hand and affirming her right to be in charge of her own life. Amazing. Every year, as I mentioned, the Society for Human Judaism chooses a role model to study and to celebrate in our various communities. And the more I've read about Ernestine Rose, the more I've discovered what an amazing woman she was. A very powerful example of the life of courage that we celebrate in Human Judaism. The courage to speak the truth. The courage to live your truth. The courage to fight for what you believe. The confidence that human reason can discover the truth, even if the answers might not make you happy. Now, Ernestine Rose left behind a positive Jewish connection for herself when she left Poland, but she always retained her sympathy and support, her identity with the Jewish people, if not for Judaism. Her entire life, she was attacked for her Jewish origins, her difference, her exoticness, as we'll see, and she always acknowledged her roots being born as a child of Israel, as she put it. One of her most famous exchanges of letters 
1863 and 1864, there was a series of eight months of editorial and response from her in the pages of a free thought newspaper called the Boston Investigator, where the editor at the time, Harry Seaver, I think his name was, said that modern Jews are better than the ancient Jews, but they're still pretty bad. <laughs> and she responded to say, they're no worse or better than anybody else. And modern Judaism has changed tremendously. She talks about the early reform movement, the modernization in Germany and in America. She says, do you really like Unitarians better than Jews if they both believe in the same God that neither of us believe in? But she defended her people in public. She didn't have to do it, but she did. You see, Rose was always the outsider insider in the women's rights movement and the free thought movement. You see, she was an atheist in the 1840s and 1850s. Now, at the time, they didn't use the word atheist as often. They would more often use the title free thinker. Or occasionally, she chose the term infidel because she figured, I'll stick it to my critics. They want to call me that, I'll take it as a badge of honor. Now, in the abolition movement, of course, many, many people were ministers, were motivated by faith, and here she was an atheist in this abolition movement. And in the women's rights movement, there were Quakers, there were spiritualists, even the first woman minister ordained in the United States was active in the women's rights movement, and here was this flaming atheist, this free thinker running around. In fact, there was a wonderful anecdote where they, have, they were having a women's rights convention, it became very rowdy. Uh, people came to heckle and to jeer and uh, were disrupting the meeting. And so Lucretia Mott, who was the chair at the time and a Quaker, handed over the gavel to Ernestine Rose to chair the last part of the meeting because she knew someone would have to call for the police. And because she was a Quaker, she couldn't call for the police. But she knew that Ernestine would have no trouble calling for the police. So she was secular in the religious movement. She was a Jewish immigrant where most of the leadership of the women's rights movements in the 1840s and 50s were native-born wasps and elites. You had to have money to travel, to hire someone to watch your kids during these conventions. She was someone older than many of those women's rights activists who were maybe in their 20s or 30s, but she was in her 40s and 50s. And she was willing to articulate the truth, no matter to whom or where or at what time. So sometimes her colleague would say something on the platform and she would have to criticize it right there and then. Now, that may influence people, but it doesn't win you many friends. But she was also able to promote ideas across these boundaries. She was giving ideas of free thought in the setting of women's rights. She was bringing the issue of women's rights to the free thought community. Now, we have very limited sources about her life. She didn't talk about herself very much. She didn't leave a biography of herself, an autobiography. And she was so devoted to the cause that her personal story wasn't as important to her. She may have had one or two children that died in its infancy, but she never talked about it except to one person, didn't make use of it in her public speeches. There are some gaps in her public schedule that may have indicated the pregnancy and infancy of the children before they died, but we just don't know. We can't even find death records that would indicate it. But we can understand that she was aware she was ahead of her time, and she also knew how difficult that life could be. Now, when she was born in Poland, her father, Rabbi Polowski, most likely did not name her Ernestine. It wasn't a common name in the area. She was born in 1810 in central Poland. Her mother died when she was young, some say at 8, some say at 16. But even when she was young, she got in trouble for asking too many questions. She was her father's only daughter, and so he raised her to study some of the material she otherwise would not have had an access to learn. And in later life, when she recalled her origin, she told a story of two problematic marriages. First, her mother died. Her father decided to get remarried to someone almost her own age. Well, that was disturbing. 
But then, even more disturbing, was the fact that she had had a dowry from her mother, and an arranged match was made. And she said to the man, I don't love you, I don't want to marry you, please don't force this to happen. And he said, too bad, I want the dowry. So what did she do? She hired a slave and went and sued them in Polish court. Not Jewish court, in Poland. Do you understand how transgressive that is? In 1820, 1825 in Poland? Amazing. She left home at 17, very rarely looked back. Although it was discovered that in her will, she left her estate to her nieces from the Jewish son. So there evidently was some connection with the family that she knew where they lived and who they were and what the name was. She found that she knew them, she wasn't cut off. She moved to Berlin first, which may have been where she got the name Ernestine, by the way, and then on to England in 1829, where she met and married William Rose, who was her partner in life for 53 years. He was a silversmith, he earned a living, and he was wonderfully supportive of her career. He was happy to be in the background for his famous wife and to support her efforts. In the 1830s in England, Ernestine became involved with the socialist ideas of a reformer named Robert Owen, who was a wealthy industrialist but tried to create idealized communities based on a socialist ethos that you improve the individual by improving their setting and their education. You don't blame the vices of the poor on sin and bad character, as was popular in the day. It's the setting, it's the training that makes the difference. And everyone has the potential to be perfectly good and honorable citizens. It's equality for everybody, equal rights. These are values that Rose would promote her entire life. In fact, when they moved to the U.S. in 1835, she and William envisioned joining an Owenite community called New Harmony in New York State, but instead they landed in New York City and didn't really leave, because given the choice between a socialist community and New York City, they stayed in New York. And it was there soon after her arrival that her public career began. Now, there had been other women beginning to do public speaking very rarely in the 1830s on behalf of the abolition movement. But it was still very rare and controversial for her to get on a stage to speak. And that was even before she opened her mouth and you heard what she said. One of the first opportunities, as I alluded to earlier, for her to do this public speaking were Thomas Paine celebrations. They would celebrate the birth of Thomas Paine in January as a special occasion for free thinkers. Thomas Paine was famous as an early free thinker and a revolutionary patriot. His pamphlet, Common Sense, the Alvinized Support for the Revolutionary War in 1776. And then in the 1790s, he wrote a book on religion called The Age of Reason, which made it so that when he died, only six people came to his funeral because so many people were mad at him for having savaged, organized religion in that book. But from the 1820s to the 1870s, his birthday was a major celebration for freethinkers. You know, some people ask, what holidays do humanists have? If it's not Christmas and Easter or Hanukkah, what do you do? Well, one of the things they would do is the birthdays, the important days of famous people, we have Darwin Day today across the humanist world. Well, this was an early Darwin Day from the 1820s to 1870s. It was Thomas Paine. It was offering toasts to his memory in honor of his life. And ultimately, because of Rose's persistence and brilliance in oratory, announced and introduced speeches and ultimately presidency of the Thomas Paine Society in New York. Now, by the 1840s, women's rights had become Ernestine's primary project in life. She loved all of her intellectual children, her abolition work, her free thought work, as well as women's rights, but women's rights was, I think, preeminent. And it became a burning issue for others as well, because they realized the limitations even in the abolitionist movement. In 1840, 
there was a world anti-slavery convention in London, but they refused to seat as official delegates any women, including the leaders of the American anti-slavery societies. And when William Lloyd Garrison, who was the head of the American Anti-Slavery Society, showed up, and he realized that that had happened, he refused to be seated also. And he sat in the gallery with the woman. But that's when the woman said, you know what? We need something else, because this movement is not going to speak for us as well. Now, Ernestine Rose, in the 1830s, began a petition drive for equal women's property rights in New York. Women couldn't pass on property to their children. They couldn't fully inherit the property of their husband when he died. They had to be held in trust for the children, and so on and so on. When she started her petition drive, the first year she got five signatures. And it grew, and it grew to 20,000, 25,000 signatures. Ultimately, after, 18, <laughs> after 13 years of working on this, by 1848, New York State finally passed a law with some kind of equal property rights for married women. And by 1850, the first of the National Women's Rights Conventions took place, and she was already one of the most well-known public speakers in the Northeast. She spoke at every women's rights convention from 1850 through 1869, although they took a break during the Civil War. She always had somewhat frail health, despite her grueling traveling schedule. There were frequent reports of her being laid low because she was sick. She left for Europe finally in 1869. She became a citizen just before she left, having not been a citizen for 20 years. She felt her health was too difficult and she couldn't not talk when she was in this country. So maybe on vacation, maybe traveling, she also found it was cheaper to live in England until they stayed there ultimately through the end of their days. And she died in 1892, 30 years away from women's suffrage, her ultimate goal. I mean, imagine. It's been less than 100 years since women could vote in this country. She did not leave any children, but she left her words from her speeches, her letters to the editor, her public life. When we hear those words now, we're struck by how relevant they still are today and how controversial they must have been when she said them, even within her own movement. So let me talk a little bit about her approach to abolition. Some of that conviction came from a socialist background, some from her experience as a Jew. She was always committed to the end of slavery as a moral wrong, as a betrayal of the Declaration of Independence. For example, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which caused the North to be complicit in catching slaves and returning them, she felt was terrible. But she would often offer side comments about abolition, even at free thought or women's rights events. Now, this led to a major controversy in the women's rights movements after the Civil War, because the question was, the 15th Amendment, as proposed, emancipated and gave the vote to male slaves, not to women, of either color. And some of the women were very, very upset. They felt betrayed. Now, some said, this is incremental progress. We should grant them that, and then we'll move on to us. Others said, all or nothing. And sometimes their appeals were not put in the nicest language. So I'll give you a couple examples from Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a heroine of the women's rights movement, who nevertheless said that women need to vote because if all men are to vote, black and white, lettered and unlettered, washed and unwashed, the safety of the nation, as well as the interests of women, demand that we outweigh this incoming tide of ignorance, poverty, and vice with the virtue, wealth, and education of the women of the country. Stanton urged educated women not to stand aside while two million ignorant men are ushered into the halls of legislation. Well, here's an even more obnoxious passage. <laughs> if American women find it hard to bear the oppressions of their own Saxon fathers, the best orders of manhood, what may they now be called to endure 
when all the lower orders of foreigners now crowding our shores legislate for them and their daughters. Think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Young Tung, who do not know the difference between a monarchy or a republic, who cannot read the Declaration of Independence, who Webster's spelling book, making laws for Lucretia Mott and Ernestine Rose. How dare Hans and Young Tung when I, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, cannot. Well, you can understand that that was not Ernestine Rose's perspective on the issue. She always advocated equal emancipation for all, but not with language like that. It resulted in a split in the women's rights movement in 1869, such that there was a National Women's Suffrage Association and an American Women's Suffrage Association over this issue of should you support the 15th Amendment or not, and they didn't reunite until 1890. It's a long time. Now, when Rose argued for emancipation, she always did it in the context of universal human rights. Why, in the name of reason and justice, should women not have the same rights? Because she is a woman? Humanity recognizes no sex. Virtue recognizes no sex. Mind recognizes no sex. Life and death, pleasure and pain, happiness and misery recognize no sex. Like man, woman comes involuntarily into existence. Like him, she possesses physical and mental and moral powers on the proper cultivation of which depend her happiness. Like him, she is subject to all the vicissitudes of life. Like him, she has to pay the penalty for disobeying nature's laws. Yet she is not recognized as his equal. Why? She's human. Why not recognize her? In the laws of the land, she has no rights. In spite of another principle, recognize in this republic. Remember, taxation without representation is tyranny. Yet here she is taxed without being represented. Her property may be consumed by taxes to defray the expenses of war, yet she has no power to give her veto against it. Not on the basis of tradition or of elevating the white race to protect against the immigrant, it's because she's human. A hundred years before the United, Declarations, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, Ernestine Rose was articulating the message of universal human rights to defend women's equality and to attack slavery. Now, when Rose spoke on women's rights, she often faced heckling and threats. I mentioned that, that controversial convention in 1853. Well, the newspapers didn't hesitate to give, the, give her a mouthful uh, also. So here's an example of one from the Albany Register. People are beginning to inquire how far public sentiment should sanction or tolerate those unsexed women who make a scoff of religion, who repudiate the Bible and blaspheme God, who would step out from the true sphere of the mother, the wife, and the daughter, and taking upon themselves the duties in the business of men, stalk into public gaze. It is a melancholy reflection that among our American women who have been educated to better things, there should be found any who are willing to follow the lead of such foreign propagandists as the hair-ringleted, glove-handed, exotic Ernestine L. Rose. We can understand how such men as the Reverend May or the sleek-headed Dr. Channing may be deluded by her to become her disciples. They are not the first instances of infatuation that may overtake weak-minded men if they are honest in their devotion to her and her doctrines. Nor would they be the first example of a low ambition that seeks notoriety as a substitute for true fame if they are dishonest. It goes on about how she would do all these terrible things, and she's foreign, and her flowing ringlets and her beautiful hands and her charming, she's sexy, and she's dangerous, and she's foreign and out there. Well, I want to give you one example of her response, and you can hear the dignity just 
wonderfully articulated here. There was a whole series of articles criticizing her in the Bangor uh, Maine uh, Mercury, which is the name of the publication there, and she says, from the tenor of these articles, it's evident the writer meant others who were invited to lecture in the course as well as me, but being too cowardly to attack any of them personally, he concentrated his whole malice upon me, feeling himself quite safe as I am only a woman, a foreigner, and as the sectarian world calls me an infidel at that. Well, he's safe, for as far as my own feelings and dignity are concerned, I treat it with the silent contempt it deserves. I stand before the world as I am, unprotected and unsupported by sect or party. I have not the advantage of a profession of religion, which, like an impenetrable cloak, covers a multitude of sins. My opinions are publicly given, and I fear no investigation of them. In principle, I know no compromise. I expect no reward. I fear no opposition, and therefore can afford to pass by in silence the outpourings of a bitter spirit, and only pity him who possesses it. Wonderful. Wonderful. And wonderfully articulated, too, in that implication that if you claim to have a religion or a party, then people let, give you a pass with whatever ridiculous things you're going to say, which you can claim it's from that, but she doesn't have that defense, and she doesn't care, because she has the strength of her own convictions. Wonderful. One of her best speeches, most well-known speeches on women's rights, was given in 1851 at the Second National Women's Convention. And in that speech, she could be talking about issues of women in the Muslim world or in Orthodox Judaism today. Who can fathom the depths of misery and the suffering to society from the subjugation and injury inflicted on women? The race is elevated in excellence and power or kept back in progression in accordance with the scale of women's position in society. You can judge a society by how it treats its women. It's true today. Look at the Muslim world in the Arab Spring, look at Orthodox Judaism in this country in Brooklyn as well as in uh, Israel and images of women in public there. All around the world, it's one of the areas that this battle is waged. For another example, To achieve this glorious victory of right over might, woman has much to do. Man may remove her legal shackles, recognize her as his equal, which will aid in his elevation, but the law cannot compel her to cultivate her mind and take an independent stand as a free being. She must cast off that mountain weight, that intimidating, cowardly question, which like a nightmare presses down on her energies. What will people say? What will Mrs. Grundy say? Away with those slavish fears. Woman must think for herself and use for herself that greatest of all prerogatives, judgment of right and wrong. And next she must act according to her best convictions, irrespective of any other voice than that of right and duty. Ernestine Rose had a wonderfully sophisticated understanding of the importance of social roles and role models, the idea of internalized oppression, when you, you hear those voices in your head that are telling you not to do something you know in your heart to be right, she had an appeal to both upper and lower classes. It wasn't only about married women's property rights. It was about the freedom to divorce a husband who wouldn't support the family, the freedom to earn a living when you need to earn a living to support yourself. One of the criticisms, by the way, of Betty Friedan and the early wave of feminism in the 20th century was that it was too middle and middle upper class focused, that the housewife who gets to stay home and says, is this all, is not the experience of the working woman who's out there every day and trying to support the family. She had a wonderful sense of revisionist history when asked about the pilgrims. She said, what about the pilgrim mothers? 
We have to ask different questions. We have to learn about the other stories that haven't been told. She had a wonderful sense of pragmatism. She knew that talking about divorce was a dangerous subject, because anytime you talked about divorce in the 1850s, they said you proposed free love. And she was monogamously married her entire life to one wonderfully supported, loving husband. She exemplified in her own life the ideal of marriage she presented, an equal marriage of love, the power of self-actualization to create an even more powerful bond as a partner. But she knew that if you raise divorce, it's going to be a problem. She suggested doing it later. Others didn't listen, but she knew it was right. Gradual, build rights. And she also knew the truth of the feminist movement brought out in the 1960s and 70s. The personal experience is political. Divorce laws are laws you need to pass. Property laws are laws. The education of children, the education of girls is important, politically, publicly. Having the right to a profession, the right to keep your own wages. You know, a husband could go to his wife's employer and take the wages from him. She didn't even have control of her own money. And that's why the title of this anthology of her speeches is Mistress of Herself, because that was her ideal. Now, the most interesting side of Ernestine's work, for us, is her free thought work. In some ways, we are the heirs of her work on women's rights, because it's assumed now many of the things she had to fought for. But she always, in that work of abolition or women's rights, rejected appeals for public reforms based on religious language. After all, you could use the Bible to oppress people as well as to liberate them. And she said it was much better to base your claims on reason. Your rights are not based on your size or physical ability. Short men, weaker men are not denied the vote. And you need the power of education and socialization, both to improve society, but also that's what's limiting women's advancement. But you would also draw on that political tradition in America. When it said all men are created equal, it didn't mean just the males. You would distinguish. When it says all men, it means humanity, not male and female. That was one of the objections, by the way, to that 15th Amendment, because it said the word male for the first time in the Constitution. And of course, that line about no taxation without representation worked for women, too. So she would also often mesh her appeal for women's rights with an appeal to action in the here and now. So let me give you one example of that. When your minister asks you for money for missionary purposes, tell him there are higher and holier and nobler missions to be performed at home. When he asks for colleges to educate ministers, tell him you must educate women that she may do away with the necessity of ministers, so that they may be able to go to some useful employment. If he asks you to give to the churches, which means to himself, then ask him what he has done for the salvation of women. When he speaks to you of leading a virtuous life, ask him whether he understands the causes that have prevented so many of your sisters from being virtuous, and have driven them to degradation, sin, and wretchedness. When he speaks to you of a hereafter, tell him to help educate women, to enable her to live a life of intelligence, independence, virtue, and happiness here as the best preparatory step for any other life. And if he has not told you from the pulpit of all these things, if he does not know them, it is high time you inform him of it and teach him his duty here in this country and in this life. You see how the free thought affects the appeal to women's rights. And I want to share two last examples. One from her speeches that were given in, uh, 19, in 1853 at the Hartford Bible Convention, which became a very difficult presentation because Trinity Bible College was just down the road, and many of those students came to heckle and hiss and jeer at the freethinkers who were talking about the meaning of the Bible and did God, in fact, write the Bible. 
And here's what she said. You can imagine the response in the audience. It has been a great mistake to say that God made man in his image. For man in all ages and times has made God in his image. And hence we have as great a variety of religions and gods as we have stages and gradations of man's perception of the true, the beautiful, and the noble. From the darkest ignorance and harbor to the present comparative state of knowledge and civilization. People boo and hiss. Hiss on if it does you any good, she said. I give utterance to these convictions to aid in man's emancipation. I know but too well what it is to go against the long-cherished and time-honored prejudices and superstitions. It's your life as a Jew, it's your life as a free thinker. It is no pleasant task to go against the current, but there is a sense of duty that balances all unpleasantness, even hissing and hooting, and all that is more potent than all persecutions that brings a peace of mind, content, and happiness that none can feel but the mentally free. As we proceed in our investigation of the Bible, we find it inculcates war, slavery, incest, rape, murder, and all the vices and crime that blind selfishness and corruption could suggest. Many have been enumerated here today, but it is utterly impossible to enumerate them all. That book has been a two-edged sword to men. It has united them in nothing but persecution, and to women it has been like a millstone tied to her neck to keep her down. It has subjected her to the entire control and arbitrary will of man. It has libeled human nature and has libeled the very God of whom it speaks. It represents him as having created man in utter ignorance of the consequences, as having created one sex and pronounced it all to be very good, but found that it was not good for man to be alone and created woman because he found that it was not good for man to be alone even though he knew what he was doing. And yet do you know, my sisters, that most of the subjugation of woman, the tyranny and insult heaped upon her spring directly or indirectly from that absurd and false assumption. It is an insult to the supposed creator to say that he created one half of the race for the purpose of subjecting it to the other, as well as a libel on the nature and powers of women to say there is no other aim or destiny in her experience except to be a plaything and a drudge to man, as circumstances may require. The writers, the writers, the writers of all such parts of the Bible where it libels her nature and powers and therefore restricts her rights more than man's, who are alike devoid of a knowledge of her nature and destiny and of wisdom, justice, and humanity. Imagine boo, boo, hiss from the audience. Well, then she winds up with this. The Bible, as a history of the past, as reminiscences of other times and places and people, would be interesting enough provided it was not palmed upon us as a guide for our age and time. As well, you might force a man at 40 to wear his swaddling clothes because they were once fit for him. The time will come, I trust, is already at hand when the Bible, like any other book, will be subject to the test of reason, the light of knowledge and of truth, and by that test either stand or fall, and every man will adopt what appears to him to be good and reject what appears to him to be bad. To you, my sisters, I would but say that the defenders of the Bible have given you by their behavior today a most practical evidence of the rights and liberties Christianity has conferred upon you. The Bible has enslaved you. The churches have been built upon your subjugated necks. Do you wish to be free? Then you must trample the Bible, the church, and the priests under your feet. And the account says, she took her place amidst deafening applause, hisses, and confusion. <laughs> and 
finally, in 1861, he gave a famous address called In Defense of Atheism. What did she say in that speech? She asked questions. If there is a God, where is he? Has geology found him? Chemistry? Astronomy? Even phrenology, which was the science of studying the shape of the forehead to decide. Well, that was science at the time. <laughs> but none of these have demonstrated that any of the claims of a flat Earth creation out of nothing, the Earth isn't flat, it wasn't created out of nothing, says chemistry. Geology says it's older than six days, take too longer than six days to make the world. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. And she says, is the world saved because he sent his son? Look at the world we experience. Is the world saved from what? From ignorance? It's all around us. From poverty and vice, crime and sin, misery and shame, it abounds everywhere. Look to your poorhouses, your prisons, your lunatic asylums, contemplate the whip, the instruments of torture and of death. Ask the murderer or the victim. Listen to the ravings of the maniac, the shrieks of distress, the groans of despair, the cruel deeds of the tyrant, the crimes of slavery, the suffering of the oppressed. Count the millions of lives lost by fire, by water, by the sword. Why does God still permit these horrors to afflict the race? Does omniscience not know it? Could omnipotence not do it? Would infinite power, wisdom, and goodness allow his children thus to live, to suffer, and to die? No. Humanity revolts against a supposition like this. And to conclude her speech, in conclusion, the atheist says to the honest, conscientious believer, though I cannot believe in your God whom you have failed to demonstrate, I believe in man. If you have no faith in your religion, I have faith, unbounded, unshaken faith, in the principles of right, of justice, and humanity. Whatever good you are willing to do for the sake of your God, I am fully as willing to do for the sake of man. But the monstrous crimes the believer perpetrated in persecuting and exterminating his fellow man on account of the difference of belief, the atheist, knowing belief, depends on evidence, and there is no merit in the belief of any religions, nor demerit in a disbelief, would never be guilty of. Whatever good you would do out of fear and punishment, or hope of reward hereafter, the atheist would do simply because it is good. And being so, he would receive the far surer and more certain reward springing from well-doing, which constitutes his pleasure and promotes his happiness. Her message is with no guarantees, we have to do it. Here and now. It's, it's a humanistic ethic. Can words be timeless? Can they transcend the centuries and speak to us even today? Well, Ernestine Rose would have said yes, if it's true. Is she a role model for humanistic Jews? Well, we've seen a wonderful example of the courage to stand up for the truth, the integrity to stand with and defend your people, the dignity to face the slings and arrows of outrageous criticism with courage and conviction, a commitment to the value of your cause, you see, Ernestine Rose is more than just an American role model, or a feminist role model, or a humanistic Jewish role model. As she would have always said, her claims to rights and free thought were based on the basic truth of her humanity. In Yiddish, which was her mamalashen growing up in Poland, she knew that the word mensch did not mean a man or a woman. It meant a person. But a mensch was the highest example of what a person could be. And in many ways, Ernestine Rose is another.
This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.